0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. Welcome to this episode, everybody. Um, hopefully, it's going to be a little bit lighter than some of our others. This episode should be a lot of fun. And we're really excited as well because we have some guest hosts with us this week as well.
0: Yeah, we are so excited to have them joining us. So, a huge hello to Andy and Rachel from Picture the Scene. Welcome to Seeing Red. Please tell our listeners a little bit about you guys and your brilliant show.
2: Well, I'm always happy that you blow smoke up my um, rectum, Mark. But uh, <laughs> yes, we. Oh, sorry. Uh, a bit about myself. Well, I am Andy. I live in Ireland. Although, obviously, you can tell with my accent, I am not Irish. I have a family of a very fairy dog, and he is my life mainly, and obviously my podcast. So I live for these. Mainly. What about you, Rachel? You
1: you also have a wonderful wife, Andrew.
2: Oh yeah, of course. I was, yeah,
1: I was wondering when she was gonna get mentioned. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, like a wonderful wife as well.
3: Um. Okay. Yeah. So, hi guys. Uh. Amazing to be here. So, thanks very much for inviting us on. Um. Okay. A little. A something about me. Um. I love true crime. Um. In any way, shape, or form. I'm the only one in my family that does. So I find it difficult, like, to uh, chat about it a lot. Um. Hence why. Andrew and I kind of hit it off, so like we did um I'm an avid uh Liverpool football fan um coming from the northwest of England myself, and yeah, I have a lovely um family um, and I've got a baby on the way, yep, expecting
1: a little girl in a couple of months.
0: yeah, oh, it's so
1: exciting. Andy, tell us a little bit about why you started your show, Picture the scene
2: well, i because I do love true crime and I listen to you guys and also like. Right, uh true crime enthusiast and twisted Britain is my uh with my gateway drug to true crime and um and yeah it's just that's why and I used to have I used to manage I used to be a customer service manager. I'm not anymore and um it was I had a team of international agents so they spoke different languages. And there was a German guy in my team always kept saying to me, I love your voice. You should have a podcast. And um, it just sparked the idea, and it took a long time, but eventually, yeah, I started a I started a podcast. I did one episode, and then Rachel joined. So I will let Rachel jump in from this.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, like the reason why Andrew and I um, ended up really we were, were colleagues, obviously, but we ended up friends was because of shows like Seeing Red. Um, so we were we'd entered into a lockdown during COVID and uh you were allowed like to go out for exercise every day and i'd I'd said to him like i need some inspiration to get me out of the house because otherwise i'll just stay in all day and he was like oh you should try this show seeing red and uh yeah um i I then just blasted through the back catalog guys major fan um and there were a couple of other shows (laughs) that andrew recommended at the time but yes seeing red um definitely uh was the one that had me hooked. And then Andrew had kind of mentioned a couple of months later, hey, I've I've done my own recording. Would you give it a listen and give me some feedback? And yeah, I kind of said, oh, I love it. And if, if you ever want me to join you like, and, and co-host for an episode, that'd be great. And he was like, yeah, sure. Why don't you do the next one? And uh, I never left after that,
1: did I? Like a bad smell. I remember listening to the episode where you were like, oh, I'm just here for the week. And then you were like, I'm staying. <laughs> So this week our episode is going to have links to our recent Titanic episode, also the episode from season two when we discussed the Great Train Robbery, and this week I've been immersed in the world of the Postal Service. Doesn't that sound like fun? Don't worry though, there will be crimes along the way as well. It's not just going to be me teaching you about the post. Did you guys know, the Post Office Investigation Branch otherwise known as the IB, is the oldest recognised criminal investigations force in the whole world. So the IB has its origins in the mid-17th century and until the early 18th century there was no official police force in Britain so private citizens were responsible for enforcing the law and prosecuting crimes which is just bonkers to think about now isn't it and the post office investigation branch actually started up in the mid-17th century.
2: That's fascinating, and it is. Imagine if that was like that now with older people who, who are on Facebook, who previously you wouldn't have had to listen to. It'd be crazy. People would be getting strung up for everything.
1: Yeah, and this is this is my question for you guys. So I'll go around the table. What would you make a crime that isn't actually a crime? But what would you make one if you could? If you could set any rule? So mine: people who don't have dessert at a restaurant. I'm not being funny. We've gone out. I'm having pudding. I don't care how full you are, you make space for your dessert and you enjoy it, okay?
0: Mine's kind of like a serious one but obviously you couldn't make it a crime but I would want to make it illegal to not say please and thank you because it just really fucks me off when people just don't have those kind of basic manners. It really pisses me off so I would definitely make that a crime if I had that power
1: something fascinating I learned when my friend went to go and teach in China he was telling me about how it was really really weird for him and he said everyone apart from what he looks like because he's clearly white and British but everyone said the thing that they know that you're a westerner is that you say please and thank you and he said a lot of the people where he was staying I can't obviously speak for the entire country but where he was staying that's the person's job so if they bring you stuff or you ask them for things like that's it's just a transaction it's not and it's they he said that they found it really weird that he'd say please at the end of everything thank you all the time they were like why are you saying thank you it's their job and he just could not get his head around that and but I'm with you Mark pleases and thank yous especially because I'm trying to train some toddlers at the moment infuriating when they don't say please yeah you definitely (laughs) need to
0: drill drill it into them just for me Mm -hmm. What, what about you Rachel what would you make a crime if you had the power
3: I guess for me, and it, this might just be because I'm like six months pregnant and I'm starting to get irritated by things, but um, people that, <laughs> here we go, um, people that eat really loudly and like, you know, have no oh, yeah. thought for anyone else. And I get it, right? There are loud noises that are made when eating the likes of crisps or slurping a drink and things like that. You can be forgiven for that as long as you're conscious of it. But you know, like people are slapping their lips. Close your mouth when you're eating, a hundred percent. Yeah, and, and and like, I don't know how what kind of punishment would be enforced for that, but yeah, if we could make some sort of <laughs> law, that would make me very happy. Love that.
0: This sounds good. Yeah, I'm right on board with that. What about you, Andy? Mine would be dog
2: poo. I am. Um, I love yes. my dog. I know you do as well, Mark. I don't like picking it up, but I do because it's a decent thing to do. I have seen people on my walk. I watch a woman who lives near me. I won't name her. She bends down and she pretends to pick it oh up.
1: No. <laughs> oh my god! What I, a little shit! What is the point yeah. of that? I don't know what's I the point. That I think that is illegal, though, Andy. I'm pretty sure it is illegal not to pick up after your dog.
2: Well, it could be. Oh, well, I look, hope oh, it's so, though.
1: But yeah.
2: I t- I, I also, when you pick it up, great. It doesn't take much to like carry it on the way home. People, I don't know about in England. I've not lived in England for many years, but in Ireland, people tie the dog poo bags. To trees and branches. What, like some
1: creepy, poopy Blair Witch Project?
2: Like, why, 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 if you go to pick it up.
1: Put it in a bin.
2: Yeah.
1: Creepy. The first Royal Mail solicitor, Richard Swift, was appointed in 1683, 50 years after King Charles I opened the Royal Mail Service for Public Use. Richard Swift went on to work for the post office for over 30 years and they had their own form of a police force well before 1829 when Sir Robert Peel founded the Metropolitan Police. So the initial version of what we know as policing today was the Met, a full-time professional police force for the Greater London area under the control of the Home Secretary. And an officer from the Met was seconded to the post office to assist with investigations just three months after the force was
0: established. I kind of understand that because it's such, it needs to be such a safe and secure thing. And it's so susceptible to criminal activity and people intercepting mail and important documents and cash and bonds. Money
1: is the main thing, isn't it? Yeah. You think about how much money was sent around back in the day. It was very physical. There was no No. electronic form.
0: No, so it makes sense that they had their own kind of version of the police or their own police officers investigating any criminal activity from within, yeah.
1: And I really find it mad when we think about how different life was, but so much was the same. So people cooked and cleaned and socialised, people had jobs, families, holidays, but so much was still very different to us today. When we think back to that episode about the murder of Fanny Adams and recently when we talked about Francisca, the woman who was convicted of fingerprint evidence for the first time ever, that was the episode about feet. Um, And we talked about the investigations being really different to what we would see now. The volume of mail absolutely skyrocketed after the 1840 penny post was introduced and so in turn did postal crimes. So the cost of posting a letter had risen steadily over the years since the postal service was set up. In 1680, a merchant named William Dockra organised the London penny post, which delivered mail anywhere in London for a penny. And he also introduced this practice of postmarking letters to indicate when and where they had been posted. The system became so successful that, of course, the government took control of the operation in 1682, absorbed it into the post office, and again, of course, they took the profits as revenue. Every time they needed more money, the government would put the cost of postage up. I read about how England was having lots of wars with France, so every time they needed to fund another war, post would go up, people paid for it. So this led to increasing public dissatisfaction and criticism of the high postage rates.
0: The only way they could
2: criticise
0: would probably be to send a letter. Yeah. That's so true. And then they're now funding it, yeah.
1: Yeah. One example I read was that to send a letter from Edinburgh to London, it could cost as much as a day's wages for a normal person. So it started to become almost out of reach for people to be able to use the postal service, which should have been a great service for everyone in the country. There was a reform discussed and a committee set up to look at reforming the postal system and a uniform postage rate was proposed. Now, another element to the issues that there were was that you would pay on arrival of the letter, as in you'd pay the post delivery person. So if someone wasn't home, that postie had to go back a few times to deliver the item because they couldn't leave it without collecting payment. It wasn't like how nowadays you pay for your stamp at the beginning. And interestingly, obviously, people started to see how they could, you know, fleece the system a bit here. So the writer, if they were fraudulent, would put a code on the outside of the letter. So when it was about to be delivered, the person who was receiving the letter would see this little note or mark or code or whatever, understand what that message was and then say, oh, no, that's not for me. Refuse delivery. They wouldn't have paid for the message. So they got around it.
0: How cool it's, is that? It's a bit like having a telegram, but in with a tiny little code on or one word or something. Sounds yeah. a bit pointless, but fair enough, yeah.
2: Mm. It sounds to me like the very first ever emojis.
0: But by the time it gets there, that emoji is probably not relevant anymore. You know, happy face, yeah, I was happy like a week last Tuesday. Yeah, but now it's not going to be like
1: that mark, is it? It's going to oh. be like a little mark that says you can rob the bank on Tuesday <laughs> because they're not in on Tuesday. <laughs> not like it. It's like... Yeah. um. It kind of reminds me of, do you remember collect calls back in the day where you could... So you'd ring your mum and it would be like, say your name, and they'll ask if they want to collect your call. And then you'd be like, pick me up from town, thank you, bye. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then nobody would pay for the call.
0: (laughs) And your mum was like, oh, for fuck's sake, again, yeah.
1: So the man who ran the inquiry and proposed the reforms suggested that by using a specially designed adhesive label to prepay the postage, huge labour costs would be saved. And next there was discussion around having a totally uniform price for all letters. So rather than individual areas who could choose to adapt the penny post or not, the whole of the country would need to. And so the uniform penny post came into force on the 10th of January 1840 with huge success. On the first day of the penny post, 112,000 letters were posted, which was more than three times the number posted on that day the previous year. Stamps, printed envelopes and covers were then made available for purchasing on the 6th of May in 1840 and in 1856 it became compulsory to prepay for your postage. So I had loads of fun, I learned loads from the Postal Museum website and I'm not sure if anyone else is really enjoying this of our listeners but in 1839 there were 76 million letters posted in the United Kingdom. In 1840 after the introduction of the Penny Post there were 168 million. Ten years later The total was 347 million letters sent in the UK.
2: And do you think they've actually managed to deliver them or are they still waiting?
1: They were probably delivered properly, unlike how we were discussing earlier, weren't we, how it's all now. So, of course, the policing of crimes against the Postal Service was really important. And so now, for over 300 years, the IB has worked to detect offences against the Post and prosecute the perpetrators of these crimes. Post office investigators had to and still do have to undergo intensive training for their roles, including methods for establishing dishonesty. Not sure what they were, but interesting interview techniques, preservation of evidence and training for the preparation of cases for consideration by the prosecuting authority. So genuinely just like the actual police. And the unit today includes crime prevention surveyors who carry out inspections of postal premises and security operations, as well as information systems analysts who monitor the patterns of crime.
0: I must admit, I d- I never knew any of that happened. And I just, I would have always just put my trust in it. And you put a lot of trust in postal delivery people and you do hear stories don't you from time to time where they've hoarded letters or they've intercepted mail and taken anything that looks like it could contain cash for example Mm -hmm. but yeah i just never thought that they would actually actively have people trying to prevent that and trying to catch people doing it so it's good to hear
2: there is one thing which i know they do because i used to know a postman who got fired um they they put money through the post to system and they track it and they make it obvious that there's money inside an envelope and then they just they to check watch. if
1: they're dodging. yeah oh, yeah amazing. and obviously
2: and this this man that i used to know um he stole, i think it was 50 quid from an envelope and because he always used to try and defend defend it to me i'm like but you stole it didn't you he's like yeah mm-hmm. but, but, they, but they shouldn't have done it they set me up i'm like well
1: no During the late 1900s and the early 2000s, the organisation has changed and the IB became the Post Office Investigation Department, POID, in 1967 and later changed its name again in 1996 to Post Office Security and Investigation Services, POSIS. 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 So today, both Royal Mail Group and Post Office Limited have operational security and investigation teams led by head of security and staffed by professional investigators and security managers. The Post Office Solicitor's Office has been succeeded by the Royal Mail Legal Services, and this is recognised by the Ministry of Justice as a private prosecutor in England and Wales, which I did not know until um, this, I assumed that the post office investigators would then put you forward to the CPS, but no, they can then prosecute you themselves.
0: It's almost like its own... Um military you know how the military has its, it's own so
1: similar isn't yeah, it yeah
0: i'm, I'm mm-hmm. honestly i know um i mean all the stats is boring to me how many letters were posted in 1704 but stuff like this oh, I fuck do, off, Mark. <laughs> um, but stuff <laughs> like this honestly and i know not everybody will find that fascinating but that to me that that that's recognized by the ministry of justice so I, mm-hmm. these are things that you would just never know about unless you kind of worked for them or obviously did a deep dive like you've done, Bethan. Spent six
1: hours reading the post office museum's website.
0: (laughs) Sad fucker. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp.
1: Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com forward slash red and get on your way to being your best self.
0: We spoke recently about how sometimes just as you're trying to fall asleep, your brain suddenly won't stop talking.
1: BetterHelp loves to give us a prompt to think about and to ask you guys our listeners about and this one really resonated with me. I always end up thinking about whether I said something that upset someone or whether I said the wrong thing, whether I looked like a bit of an idiot. It just always then sticks in my brain and goes round and round.
0: When I have a big decision to make, I find that I really struggle to get to sleep because I'm wondering, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right way to go? Should I change my mind? And what will so-and-so think about it? That's what I'm always struggling with, particularly when I've got those big decisions.
1: So it turns out that one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. And therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace
0: therapy is absolutely a great way to shut down that negative cycle. As well as being helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, therapy also gives you the opportunity to stop worries from racing around your mind.
1: We've said this before, and I think it's really important to remember that therapy is not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It is a support for all of life's ups and downs.
0: That is so true. Mm. If you are thinking of starting therapy, then give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge.
1: Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash red today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash red. So does someone
3: um, manage the, their kind of rulings and making sure that they're making fair decisions uh, internally? I would assume so, yeah. I'd assume so, but I don't know if definite. I will find out for you, Rachel. Because <laughs> um, only because I've seen like a lot of cases that can be um, related to corruption when there's like, you know, the US military, for instance, having their own body and it not being like, governed as well as the police in the us so Mm -hmm. you know that can lead to unfair non-prosecution um
1: yeah i suppose if you give any company power there's the opportunity isn't there yeah yeah so the investigation branch so now the posis have investigated so much over the centuries from multi-million pound heists vicious murders stamp fraud forgery Dog attacks on postal workers of course that's quite a major one and I think sometimes it can be quite funny you think of like dog barking at somebody but actually really really dangerous if that person's having to come up to your door or come into your front garden and there's a loose dog you know they do need to be um, investigated as a crime. As well as crimes committed by the public the unit also investigates offences by postal staff so Some cases involved investigators going undercover to infiltrate post offices to watch the activities of the postmen and postwomen to ensure that they, you know, catch the right person.
0: I just can't believe all of this goes on. I mean, that is a dream job for someone like me to work in a kind of offshoot of what is essentially like the police, isn't it? But now not officially the police, but being able to go undercover and infiltrate post offices and watch what people are doing and probably they're setting up covert cameras if they suspect staff theft for example that is honestly yeah I'd I'd love to be involved in all of that I'd absolutely love it
3: I'd imagine there'd be hours
1: worth of like wasted work though wouldn't there where you're just
3: trying to look busy while
1: you're trying to catch somebody and it would be really mind-numbing I should imagine you'd be given like the menial jobs Whilst you're oh, there, just don't, undercover. Don't, Sorry, don't Mark. Don't
0: trash this dream. This is my dream. I was going to go job hunting this afternoon.
1: <laughs> we're saving you from from a boring, sat in the office, just sorting something that no one else wants to sort, because you're the new guy.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you.
1: However, you may love the name of this. So in the 18th century, the post office's solicitor hired deputies that were called inquirers, to undercover yeah. and capture the criminals.
0: I would take that title. Mm-hmm. I would love that job title. Yeah. Sounds
1: a bit Monty Python, doesn't it? The inquirers yeah. are here. <laughs> yeah. In 1722, two inquirers caught a notorious mail robber called John Hawkins, as well as his associate George Simpson. So the pair had held up a postboy called Thomas Green on the London to Bristol post route. Thomas Green and his friend called James Ladbrook were riding along on their horses and they were held up by three men. The men had covered their mouths with handkerchiefs and they had their wigs and hats pulled forward over their faces. They ordered Green and Ladbroke down a nearby lane, get off their horses. They tied them back to back and fastened them to a tree in a wet ditch. They then rifled through the Bath and Bristol post bags, took any packets of money that they could find through the rest of the post in a hedge. And then they divided up the banknotes from the post bags and threw all the letters in a file. And they'd kind of made their way to London to do this. They were caught by the inquirers, found guilty, and they were both hanged at Tyburn on the 21st of May, 1722.
0: It what it what, things were a lot more strict, weren't they, hundreds of years ago? Even in this country, it just to me, that's not civilized to to have that as a form of punishment for what they'd actually done. And I think, yeah, things were just a bit. There was a, a lack of perspective on some things. Uh, although I am just basing that on how we live now.
1: But what I would say is they, you know, they had a pistol and they terrified some people into handing over stuff that wasn't theirs, and then they robbed them of it. Pretty yeah, major. But they've been
0: hanged for this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, that's severe. It
1: is severe, and I guess that is the case, isn't it, with a lot of the crimes that we look at that are historical? Because the penalties for crimes against the post office were laid down by an Act of Parliament in 1765, so stealing or destroying mail was punishable by death as a felon.
0: And, and I guess it was almost to act as a warning to yeah. prevent anybody else from doing it. Yeah. So I can understand the rationale, but yeah, it, it feels massively extreme to me.
1: Definitely. One person that was held to this sentence was a man called Arthur Bailey, who was sentenced to death and hanged after stealing a letter containing bills of exchange and forging an endorsement. In 1811, the Newgate calendar published an account of his execution. So do you remember we talked about the big broadsheets that they would write up and they'd, they'd make before, but they'd draw a picture of the person being hanged and it would yeah. um be almost like a tabloid nowadays, but what they did then... um. At the gallows, Bailey held up a Bible and he cautioned the gathered crowd and said, I hope you will all take warning. I beg you to often look into this book and you will not come to shame. Be sure to be honest and do not covet money, cursed money. Which I just thought was, I feel sad for him. He really, really regretted it by the end.
0: But was he he also having a bit of a pop at the crowd that had assembled to watch his execution? I don't
1: think so. I think he was genuinely trying to help someone else oh, not yeah, okay. do what he did
0: yeah okay yeah and that that again was partly why executions were public yeah and are public still in some parts of the world is to very much be publicly this is what can happen if you step out of line yeah here's a warning yeah yeah
1: A postman named John Barrett was hanged in Newgate Prison in 1832 for stealing from the post. And his name's often referenced because he was the last postman sentenced to death for stealing from the post. The death penalty for postal offences was abolished five years later in the Post Office Act of 1837. And the crime was then replaced with the sentence of transportation to other countries for periods from seven years to life. I mean, that is somehow sounds even worse. (laughs)
0: <laughs> seven years worse than being hanged yeah, yeah but you think no, about I'm transportation not, you mean, life in and then yeah. you have
1: to then start a whole new life oh. in another country because quite often they wouldn't get back from australia or wherever they got transported to and then oh, yeah do you remember the australia episode actually when we talked about um people where they had been incarcerated and then they had to start yeah. new lives and stuff
0: yeah. Yeah, that is harsh because you're moving away from family. A different world back then. You'd never been able to come back and yeah, it's like a whole new life in a different country and you've been exiled essentially.
3: It's mad though, because it's teaching this kind of punishment, although it is extreme. In both cases, the hanging and the um banishment and, and length of, of term in prison. Um it's probably really teaching a lot of people like about the implications of breaking the
1: law. Whereas yeah. like
3: nowadays our prison service is People are pretty much
1: so what if they're going to jail, but then there's the interesting thing that none of this is trying to reform anybody, it's just you did it, you're punished, done,
2: yeah. And it never did. You hear about like bolts and bolts of people being transported and people being hung all the time, so or hanged. I always get them two mixed up, one of the two, and um, it wasn't a deterrent, was it? Just like it isn't now. So, I, I disagree with you, Rachel. It's not like someone looked at it and thought if I steal this loaf of bread, I'm going to get sent to Australia, so I better not do. It's necessity and desperation, isn't it? So it didn't work.
0: I, I think I think it's both because I, I think there's certainly lots of career criminals will kind of almost accept that they're going to be in and out of prison throughout their entire lives. And they almost look at going into prison as a bit of a break from the society that they live in. And they're catching up with Old friends and relatives that might be in prison as well. So some people just don't give a shit about it at all. But for me, I always I don't know about you guys, obviously, because we, you know, we're all fascinated by true crime and our listeners too, of course. And it does make it does put you in the position of some of the criminals and of course, some victims sometimes. But sometimes I do think, and I always, I've always always said it to Bethan over the years, I'm convinced at some point, aren't I, Bethan, that I'm going to end up in prison? Not because I'm going to set out to do anything really bad, but I'm just going to fuck up at some point. And I really hope it won't happen. I'm sure it won't. But there's a tiny part of me that just feels it's inevitable. I'm going to end up doing some time for some fuck up that I'm going to do. And I just, I, I don't think I'd survive in prison because I'm just such a little sensitive pussy. <laughs> and they just rip me to shreds so i hope it doesn't ever happen
3: i've always said to lee my other half i've been like promise me no matter how bad it gets never we never break the law like because there's just this idea for me of like that being the worst thing and not only um having to face the consequences of that but then to be made an example of and having an extremely long sentence or you know, a parole period that's impossible to, like, you know, meet the standards of or whatever that looks like. You just don't know, do you? So, so yeah, we,
1: we kind of made that bargain with each other. So the death penalty on its own, of course, wasn't abolished until much later. And we talked in the past about how technically the death penalty was still an option in the UK up until it was officially made illegal in 1998. We see it hasn't been used for a long time until that point. But it's just mad, isn't it, to think of that? as that recent on the 15th of november 1957 a 24 year old man called vivian teed broke into forest sub post office in swansea at about 7 p.m he did not expect to be disturbed but was almost immediately confronted by the postmaster a 73 year old man called william williams not only did he run the post office but it was also his home after a struggle broke out, Teed attacked Mr Williams with a hammer that he brought along to force entry before fleeing the post office empty-handed because he was unable to access the money that was in the safe. Post office worker Margaret John turned up for work the next morning and couldn't open the door and she looked through the letterbox and saw Mr Williams lying in the hall and called the police. So they found that the old man had been killed by repeated blows and they found under his body a silk stocking. There were footprints in blood in the hall. And it was the briefest of manhunts. It was really, really quick. So the hammer, which had snapped in the ferocity of the attack, was traced to a works toolbox belonging to Teed's dad. Footprints in Mr Williams's blood were matched to Teed's shoes. Blood spatters were found on his trousers and his coat. And he even confessed his crime to a stranger in a local cafe. Teed was arrested three days after Mr Williams was found. Initially denied any involvement in the crime, but then soon confessed After the police sort of told him they'd found the blood on his jacket and his trousers and his shoes and they gave him all of the evidence in front of them. On the surface, the murder was an open and shut case, but it remains controversial and arguably hastened the abolition of capital punishment in the UK. In a statement, he'd told the police how he'd knocked at the door, wanting to see if anyone was around, and then he pushed his way in. But Mr. Williams was there and he yelled at him. He said he had a hammer in case he had to force the door, and when he realised someone might hear the commotion of Mr. Williams shouting at him, he pulled the hammer out of his pocket and hit him. But instead of knocking him out as he expected, Mr. Williams continued to struggle. So he kept on hitting him, and I'm pretty sure it was something like 27 blows, so this wasn't a couple of hits, it was pretty frenzied.
0: And did you say that the hammer, part of the hammer had, broke had come away? in the frosty, wow.
1: yeah. It was a so savage the, I mean,
0: attack. I was going to say that is friends. Yeah.
1: not After rifling around for some money, he'd left the still-alive Mr Williams and fled into the night. He had thought about leaving the door open so that someone might find Mr Williams and save him, but then he saw someone outside, and so he just didn't really, and it was just all... You could tell that he didn't mean to do any of it, but everything he did just was was totally the wrong decision. For Teed to receive the death sentence after his trial in 1958, the jury had to not only be convinced that he killed the victim, but also that the murder met one of the five criteria specified by the previous year's Homicide Act. So I don't know if you remember this, Mark, and you guys, if you've listened to the episode, but the Homicide Act became law in March of 1957, and it classified murders as capital or non-capital, and also introduced the notion of diminished responsibility into English law. So under the Act, there were five categories of murder for which the death sentence was still mandatory. Um, Before this, there were lots of different... This kind of really made it very black and white. The five categories for murder um, for which the death sentence was still mandatory were murder committed in the course or furtherance of theft, murder by shooting or explosion, murder whilst resisting arrest or during an escape, murder of a police or prison officer and two murders committed on different occasions. So
0: this is that is interesting Bethan because although obviously we don't have capital punishment now that the the sentencing guidelines there are they are still there they're very similar they're they're a lot more expanded on that but the two murders committed on different occasions for example so if somebody has murdered somebody for example in 1990 Served 20 years sentenced and they're then out of prison. It's still a life sentence because they're on probably a lifelong license, but they're free. If they then murder someone again, then that is a mandatory whole life yeah. order. So we do. So although obviously that's not capital punishment, we do still have very similar. Uh, criteria and it is massively expanded on like I said so if the if the murder is money motivated for example that is still a big issue Um, but things like using guns or an explosive device I I don't think there's anything that would cause your sentence to be harsher as a result of that as there was back in in the 50s
1: Mm. so So this jury and juries at this time, they had this really new way of making decisions. They had to think about diminished responsibility as a new element to the law, which they wouldn't have had before. But also, obviously, with Teed, it was in the furtherance of robbery. So they had kind of two elements to this case. And on Tuesday, March the 18th in 1958, the jury of 10 men and two women deliberated for four and a half hours. Twice they failed to reach an unanimous verdict. And Teed sort of sat there waiting for the decision. When they emerged for the third time, they did declare that he was guilty of capital murder in the furtherance of theft. But everyone who had met Teed said that he wasn't in his right mind and loads of people gave evidence that he shouldn't have been found guilty because he, from their opinion, there was diminished responsibility for this person. An appeal the following month failed. The Home Secretary refused clemency despite this 16-page petition. And Mark Davis, who is head of criminal law, or was at least when he wrote the article that I read um, at Gladstone Solicitors in Swansea, said that he believed it may well have been measured designed to make the death penalty harder to implement, which actually left teed being convicted. So he writes this fascinating record of the case, and he said, Teed was the first person in the UK to be convicted under the 1957 Homicide Act, which narrowed capital murder to just six categories, one of which was the causal furtherance of theft. And his case fitted so neatly into this that I don't believe the jury gave due consideration into the Act's other new provision, the introduction of the notion of diminished responsibility. Teed's might not have been a miscarriage of justice in the same way as Timothy Evans or Derek Bentley, and I don't know if you guys remember the Derek Bentley episode, um, but this guy says it fed into the growing unease over the morality of hanging. And I think that's so true. It we now look at this in a really different way to how people did in the fifties. The fact that he was hanged for this.
0: I think there's more more compassion now. We're we're more educated around people's mental health and certain limitations and additional needs that people may have that cause them to behave in in a way that doesn't fit in with societal norms. So it it, it does make sense that in that time, but it's interesting even back then, but it, certainly in that time, we, we've come on a lot in terms of actually, let's look at the real context here. And yet it does sound with this jury that this whole kind of um thing of diminished responsibility was just such a new thing for them that they just kind of forgot to consider it could be a possibility in this case
3: i'm fascinated too by the fact that the jury have come out twice and said that they failed to reach uh, that verdict and then on the third time obviously having having done so successfully but you know there are rules um that are implemented on a jury and you can't have people coercing other people into um, you know decisions and, and verdicts and so how how individuals come to that conclusion by the third time without having yeah. broken any of the rules that say you know you can't just give in you can't just coerce somebody you can't do any of this stuff you you have to come to your own decision uh, taking all the facts based on uh, into account it's isn't it mad that somebody you know or the other or people that
1: were being sticks in mud turned around and went okay yeah, yeah. he is guilty now I believe it. Yeah, and I should have made that more clear actually. So the third time that they came out was, so that they came out twice and said to the judge, "We cannot get an a decision." And the judge then gave them direction, and that is another element to this being potentially a miscarriage of justice was that the judge kind of quite quite firmly stated, "Is this in the furtherance of theft?" And there was obviously more to the judge's um, direction, but yeah, that's that's why they ended up coming out with. Yeah.
2: I can say that's fascinating because recently, over the last maybe month, I've been reading lots and lots of appeal documents. Um, and lots of appeals are successful because of misdirection by judges. And this one is someone's life on the line, mm-hmm. isn't it? So you can't, I mean, obviously they can be pardoned after the fact, but they're still dead, aren't they? So, yeah. Well.
0: There's, there's so many technicalities in a trial, aren't there, where it can just, it can essentially be decreed a mistrial because one tiny bit of evidence was included that shouldn't have been, or there was misdirection from the judge, mm-hmm. for example. But yeah, so much can go wrong. And I, 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 you know, obviously following a massive trial at the moment, I won't name it, but we will probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, we're expecting a verdict any day now. And um it's really made me think about the whole judiciary system in this country. And is it fit for purpose? Because we've had it for a long time and lots of things change over the decades and centuries. But this hasn't really changed. And maybe it should. I honestly don't know what the answer is. Um, but I do kind of think, yeah, so much can go wrong. And my concern with this scenario here is that, yeah, they've done an about turn. They've now agreed a guilty verdict that could just be simply down to a couple of jurors just saying, oh, whatever, I'm kind of done with this. We'll go guilty then. And they don't actually believe it, but they are being coerced into that. As you kind of said, Rachel, or they just want it done and dusted. So they're just like, yeah, I'll just go with the majority of people then. And that's not fair totally unfair so i don't know what the answer is but it's fascinating to think about it yeah and whether it is right for the world we live in today in the 21st century that's
1: it and this really did show like the the difference this case quite clearly shows a, a very stark difference because on the morning of the execution um there were a few people stood outside the prison A 100 years before people would have been fighting for the best spot to go and see an execution and there's a an author called Jeff Brooks who wrote about the case in a book called Swansea in the nineteen fifties and writes for local history. And he said everyone was quite torn because on one hand there was this pillar of the community, the local postmaster had been killed. On the other hand, the man who was gonna hang for this wasn't in his right mind, according to everybody in the town. You know, there's there's these petitions, there was no clemency, and it wasn't how it would have been a hundred years before people would have been buzzing mm. to go and view this.
0: I think that's damning, isn't it? That does say a lot and people can vote uh, and express their thoughts with their feet and turn up or not turn up and support it or not support it. So that's kind of nice to hear that the general public were not in agreement with with this course of action.
1: In the 1960s, the post office investigators worked in collaboration with the police to solve the Great Train Robbery. Has everybody remember that episode so long ago now season two. Um, oh my god in that episode we talked about a daring raid on a post train by a gang led by bruce reynolds and if you haven't listened to it guys please do go back um season two i think episode six maybe but basically look at season two and in the raid the gang stole 2.6 million pounds I don't think I really looked at the post office's involvement in the investigation at the time, but of course now I know more about the IB and so I was really interested in knowing more about what they did. A senior IB officer was sent to the scene of the crime and a number of other IB officers were involved in the investigation as well. The press conference was held jointly by the post office and Buckinghamshire police. Initially that first big press conference where they said about this, you know, the crime of the century. The banks that were affected reacted really quickly and offered an unprecedented award of £250,000 for the capture of the robbers. And the post office added a further £10,000 to that figure. So the banks in, in total had put together that figure and even the post office added some, which I don't think I knew before.
0: No, we definitely didn't mention that. And I I can understand all of this because from a PR perspective, the post office Royal Mail need to preserve the integrity of their operation and they need to show that they take this seriously and they work closely with the police and have a, a relationship with them to bring the perpetrators to justice to show that that there are consequences to doing this and you can't do it and we want to avoid people doing it again because people need to have trust in that service, particularly back then, but but certainly now too. So yeah, it's almost like a PR exercise on their part, Mm -hmm. adding 10 grand to the part and being at the press conference to kind of say, yeah, we do take this really seriously. Don't fuck with us. Yeah.
1: And one of the first tasks of the IB was to investigate rumours of an inside job because like you said, they needed to prove that they weren't the ones to to, you know to fear or to um, be worried about you can trust the post office obviously all three of the secure coaches were simultaneously out of action for the first time when the robbers stopped the train and they they put them all out of action the gang's apparent knowledge of the lack of security and their knowledge of the exactly out of the train Also, the fact that they knew the unusual amount of cash was being carried on board that morning. Um, All of these things kind of fueled the rumour mill. Although, as we discussed in the episode, it was a bank holiday weekend. It was a time that you would know that there was going to be more money. But even still, all 77 of the post office staff that were present on the train were background checked, interviewed at length. Um, As we discussed in the episode, the identities of some of the gang have never been confirmed including this post office insider but despite intense speculation and inquiries led by the investigation branch they did officially rule that there was no evidence of collusion and no proof of a post office insider has ever been found
0: i'm skeptical at that though. oh of course are you? you are yeah i'm not i well, know but i am i don't think there is I, I think they
1: would have found them i think they did such good investigating good i point. think they would have found the the person
0: and also, I mean, it you know they would have been cut into the loot, I guess, and you it was harder to kind of disguise that and launder money. I mean, you could it it was easier in one sense because cash was you know that's how you paid for everything, but it would get noticed, wouldn't it, if somebody suddenly came into money? Mm-hmm. You couldn't really launder it in an easier way, yeah, through technology. So yeah, may, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe there was no. But confusion. maybe
1: there was. So maybe maybe I am wrong. Maybe <laughs> who knows.
0: And that was, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but that was £2.6 million back then. And in today's money, it's tens of millions of pounds, certainly. It was probably ten times as much at least. And it was just sacks and sacks full of cash, wasn't it? It, it was, was unprecedented. Yeah,
1: like heavy yeah. and cumbersome.
2: I, I believe
0: from the episode it
2: was £46 million, I think you said at the time. But um, I, I agree with what you said, Mark, and especially even nowadays there's, uh, in the news at the moment in Ireland, The the police, I can't remember since down deep in the south of Ireland, uh, there's police asking people to be vigilant of people who suddenly have a lot more money because they know there's a lot of cocaine in the area and they need to catch the people who have it and they basically said to the public, we don't know who it is. If you see anyone who had money that shouldn't, let us know so we can investigate them. So even nowadays, wow. they're, they're looking at that. But I, I just want to touch on the episode. I know I'm going off on a tangent here. If you haven't listened to this episode, people, not only is it a great episode anyway, but Beth and a poem and <laughs> yeah. Mark, and, and Mark he sings in it. Oh, so
1: no. I, oh my god! I, was I, re- that I don't that remember episode, the poem. I don't, I don't remember, remember singing. that. That's hilarious. I'm going to go and re-listen to that episode.
0: I must have been mixing alcohol and prescription pills again. Prescription
1: in inverted commas. <laughs>
0: Rude. Um, God, I don't remember that, but I remember it was a facet. There was so, we all think we know this case in this country because it is part of criminal history, isn't it? And we do all know it and we might have seen films about it and TV shows. But yeah, that episode, I mean, you did an amazing job, Beth. And it taught me so much that I just did not know about that robbery and how it was pulled off. And, yeah it's, it's, it is it's a fascinating episode so do go back and listen to it
1: yeah oh, thank you guys no i i enjoy researching those sorts of historical crimes i always find them really interesting and on that note i did say at the beginning that we would refer back to the titanic episode to today um during the episode we discussed how rms titanic stood for royal mail ship titanic or well, at the time it was royal mail steamer titanic um so, the Titanic had a post office and mail room deep on the ship in decks F and G. The five postal workers on board during the fateful voyage had the job of sorting much of the mail that had been brought on the ship. There were 3,364 300, 3, bags in total, and they also had to deal with any letters that were posted whilst on the ship by passengers and crew. When the ship struck the iceberg, the postal workers were celebrating a birthday. However, they soon realised that the mail room was flooding attempted to move 200 sacks of registered mail to the upper decks in the hope of saving them. They even forced several of the stewards to help them, and one of them later reported the following. I urged them to leave their work. They shook their heads and continued at their work. It might have been an inrush of water later that cut off their escape, or it may have been an explosion, but I saw them no more. And a memorial to the five postal workers was built in Southampton from where the Titanic departed. And part of it reads steadfast in peril. And also the newspaper St. Martin's Le Grand. Or maybe should that be like a French French way of saying it? I don't know. Um, but that newspaper praised the brave postman later that year. Not not anything to do with crime, but just a really sad but interesting element to the people who did lose their life on the
2: the I think this is fascinating. You don't see this anymore. These people were willing to die for their job.
1: Yeah.
2: How I, I can't. They like, genuinely I wanted to, to
1: save that male. It's mad, isn't
2: it? I, I often say to one of my friends um, who I work with, not Rachel, I, I have more than one friend. Oh, someone's um, doing well. <laughs> I, I often say, like, in 20, 30 years' time, our work won't exist. Like, we, our jobs won't exist. And what we've done won't it won't have any impact like we don't build something we don't
1: i don't i can't think of any situation where the royal mail workers today in 2013 would be expected even it wouldn't even cross their minds to save that post before they got themselves out they would be expected and trained to get out of a situation and save themselves that but on this ship that it was their duty so yeah Thank you so, so much, Rachel and Andy, for joining us this week for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed being on the show, and we've loved having you.
2: Thank you for having us. This has been awesome. and We're going to have to have you two on to help us picture the scene. Definitely. Um, We'd shortly, love to. But you can find us wherever you listen to your podcast. I know you hear that all the time, but wherever you're listening to this right now, you can find us as well. Just type in picture the scene, and you will find us.
0: Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.